Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming back promptly after lunch. I mean, I think the session that we're going into now is really like a modeling session in, in many ways. Um, so we're starting with, a, with the topic models, mistakes, and, and may, mayhem. And we've got Kavi and Adelia from Ernst & Young talking to us about that. Kavi's worked extensively across, extensively across the industry for more than 10 years. His clients include almost all of the short-term insurers of significance in the South African market and several large players um, as we move further, further north on the continent. He served as a statutory actuary for four short-term insurance licenses in the SA market and as the appointed actuary for a Kenyan general insurer. Um, he specializes in the application of actuarial expertise to the industry really in the areas of um, reserving, pricing, product development, capital modeling, economic scenario gener uh, generators, solvency two and SAM, SAM projects, and more recently, IFRA 7. So it doesn't really sound like specialization. It seems like you've had all the buckets. So I think that we're really, really privileged to, to have um, you here with us. Nadelia has recently come back to South, to South Africa. Um, so she brings with us a whole lot of um, international experience, um, mainly working out of EY in, in, in Zurich and a lot of exposure to the, the Allianz Group, which is some, a group that we often look to when we, we think about what's happening internationally. And also a wide range of um, expertise um, and now an associate director in the actuarial practice, focusing on risk management, capital modeling. Um, so I think an interesting discussion for all of us. Thanks very much. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Given that it's after lunch uh, and everyone's feeling um, quite full, hopefully, and, and uh, perhaps a little bit sleepy, um, I'm going to start by telling you uh, a bit of a story. Um, and then I'm going to hand over to Adelia, who uh, will talk a little bit more about uh, the topic we have for you today um, around, around model risk. But really, I'm going to start with the story on the topic. Uh, it's really the story of a company called uh, Knights Capital. And uh, the gentleman who started it, uh, a guy by the name of Ken Pasternak. And uh, Ken started his career in 1979. Uh, he started in the Jersey area in the States. Um, he actually started as a librarian uh, for a small brokerage in that, in that area called Spear Leeds. Um, and as you could do in those days, uh, in a very short space of time, in fact, uh, if I remember correctly, it was just over 10 years, um, Ken had worked his way up to, onto the trading floor um, and soon became head of trading uh, for, that, uh, for that entity. Um, so he was obviously quite an ambitious guy, and he uh, was obviously quite smart. Around about the mid-90s, uh, Ken and one of his colleagues saw an opportunity in the market. Um, they realized that the old way of trading stocks on open outcry exchanges um, and, and those iconic pictures that you're used to seeing about on, on with bullpens and people shouting back and forth was going to be over. And the new age of, of the internet um, and electronic trading had, had dawned. It was the days of Google um, starting up 
and and the world had was starting to realize the power of uh, of the internet. Him and he, and and his colleague Roger had a, had a a bright idea that they would start an electronic market maker. Um, and it really was a revolutionary idea. It's, it's, it's of the order of you know, thinking of Uber uh, a few years ago. Um, it, it was a revolution of its time, and, and the business took off really quickly. In 1997, which was two years later, um, that business called Knight's Capital uh, was the second largest market maker of electronic trades on the NASDAQ. In 1999, in fact, I read, EY actually gave him an award for Entrepreneur of the Year. Um, and in the early 2000s, uh, the business really boomed when uh, the, the age of electronic trading finally dawned and applications of algorithmic trading to execute large trades finally came into, into, into their own. And basically what, what companies would do is they would use algorithms to, to put through extremely large orders without moving the, uh, the price. Um, in the in in the market, um, it, so he was extremely successful, and so was the company. And uh, in 2001, he ranked ninth um, in terms of Forbes uh, financial services uh, list. Um, he 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 earned, I think it was, 26 million US dollars um, in that year, and, uh, and 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 the company grew from there. Over a period of a decade, then. Um, and if you fast forward to around about 2012, um, algorithmic trading matured. Um, the, the techniques got a lot more sophisticated. Um, and uh, there were one or two hiccups, which I'll speak about in, in a second, around uh, you know, scares with, 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 with this type of trading. Um, but really, it, it, by mid-2012, it was a really, really mature uh, market, a really, really mature uh, service offering, especially when it came to market making. So the, the event I'm going to talk about really happened on the 1st of August uh, 2012. Um, the New York Stock Exchange opened at 9.30, as it does uh, on, on most mornings. And it took exactly one minute for people to realize that something was not right. Uh, something was different on that day. Um, three minutes later, given the stock movements that were seen, it was undoubtable. Um, something had definitely uh, gone awry with, uh, with the, the, the exchange and no one knew what was going on. Now, I, I'll, I'll, I, I hinted back to, um, you know, there have been a couple of hiccups before. Um, back in 2010, uh, in May of 2010, in fact, there was a famous flash crash uh, where uh, similarly an algorithmic trading algorithm had mal malfunctioned and caused the single largest drop on the New York Stock Exchange in history. Um, and following that uh, flash crash, a number of safeguards had been put in place um, to prevent this from happening again. Things like um, limit orders on, on the, or limit thresholds on the market. If any stocks moved by a certain amounts, they would close for trading, um, limit down. Um, and, and, and various other belts and braces have been put, put in place. So it wasn't as though there was no risk management. But in this particular case, um, on, on this morning, um, it, was, it was as the market had opened. Um, and all of those belts and braces and, and limits only applied after the first 15 minutes because generally people allowed 15 minutes for the market to, to, to really settle. They were also only based on stock price movements. And this particular event, as we'll find out, 
uh, really had to do with volumes of trades. So it took 15 minutes uh, really for them to figure out what was going on and that the trades were coming from um, Knight's Capital. And it took a further hour by some reports. Um, and there's a very interesting book you can read which actually, which actually gives a minute-by-minute -minute account of, of, of this event. It took a further hour for them to actually shut down the Knight's Capital um, algorithms. Um, and when the dust had, set, had, had settled, um, 148 stocks were affected. Um, Knight's Capital had sent out thousands and thousands of trade orders. The total loss that they suffered uh, in, in then uh, rectifying their book um, and, and getting out of some of the positions that they'd got, gotten into was 400 million US dollars. Um, and they almost went insolvent. Uh, it took quite a, quite a big effort uh, to remediate the situation and, and, and put them back on their feet. Um, they were almost uh, completely gone in, in an hour. Um, and they were a massive, massive organization with a sophisticated environment. So the reason I mentioned this particular story and this particular example is because I think it's a very interesting case study in terms of the future of uh, financial risk management, certainly, but, but risk management in, in general. It's a very extreme scenario, but, but it, 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 it highlights quite nicely um, you know, where the world is going, and, and I'll speak a little bit more um, about that in a second. So I'm going to bring us back to the title of our talk for a little bit, uh, Models, Mistakes, and Mayhem. Um, and it really refers to three, um, let's call them objectives, uh, that we have uh, for our talk today. Um, the first one is models. Uh, and, and really what that's about is a realization um, or a recognition, and it might seem blindingly obvious when I say it, um, but that models are becoming more and more pervasive in business today. Um, in fact, I would argue that there's an exponential growth in the use of models um, in, in the insurance industry, but in financial services more general, and in the global economy um, even more generally. Uh, so our exposure to this risk is definitely increasing quite dramatically and quite, at quite a, a, a high rate. Um, and in, in fact, I used at a, at a previous actuarial seminar just the growth in the number of actuaries in the room um, at, at the short-term insurance seminar, for example, um, over a period of 10 years speaks to just how much more modeling is going on um, in insurance. The second word, mistakes, um, really is, is a second recognition, um, and a recognition about inherent biases that we have when it comes to risk management um, and, and as actuaries when it comes to, when it comes to models. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell a quick story um, uh, on that. I think Catherine Schultz, who, who's, who's done a very interesting TED talk, you can go and look it up, um, speaks about um, the bias around mistakes. Um, and and, and one, one of the anecdotes which stuck with me um, was, was when she asks, what is feeling wrong, what does being wrong feel like? Um, and she answers the question, well, being wrong doesn't actually feel like anything um, because you haven't realized that you're wrong yet. Um, it's kind of like the coyote and the roadrunner, if you've ever seen that cartoon, where the, where the, where, where the roadrunner runs off this cliff and is in midair and keeps running for, uh, for a few meters uh, past, the, past the edge of the cliff. Um, being wrong doesn't feel like anything. Realizing you're wrong feels like uh, you know, a ton of bricks has hit you. And when the coyote realizes that he's wrong, he then falls and, 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 uh, and drops. And, and so I think that there are some inherent biases when it comes to managing model risks that we as, we as actuaries have to own up to and, and have to recognize. 
And the last one, um, it speaks to the mayhem. Um, so it speaks to the night capital uh, story. Um, and that's the fact that, you know, the world is changing. Um, so apart from the proliferation of data science and models, um, as I mentioned, it's also getting more and more, uh, it's also changing um, more and more quickly. Um, and it's becoming more and more automated, which is another reason why I think the Knights Capital case study is a very, uh, very poignant one. Um, and, and, and that's because in, in years to come, it's the, the, the environment that the risk management that Knights Capital had to put in place and, and ultimately remediate is probably going to be a little bit closer to the environments that we work in day to day. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Adelia, who's going to take you through um, some of what we have to say around risk management. And really what the talk is about is, you know, with these realizations, uh, what should we doing? What should we be doing um, about model risk? And we, we, we presented a framework, um, or we will present a framework, um, but of course it's not the, it's not the only solution and, and certainly not the whole answer. Okay, so if Kavi hasn't already grabbed your attention as to why we should manage model risk, we have a couple of examples for you to kind of re-emphasize that. And we've split it into a couple of categories. So the first one is, of course, to avoid regulatory fines. Now, this is something that is actually becoming more pervasive with um, risk capital models like SAM and Solvency 2. Recently, there was a fine for partnery in Ireland, 1.5 million euro, for lack of model governance around their SCR calculation. Um, of course, operational losses, similar to what Kavi just said, or depending on how you classify it, many examples of that, especially in the investment banking world, um, but also systemic risk and bailouts. So if you think about the, the big financial crisis we had between 2008 and 2012, um, one could say that over-reliance in models were one of the reasons why we had that in the first place. So I'm not going to go through all these examples, but I think you can see there's enough financial evidence to prove that it's something worth thinking about. So let's start with a big question. What is a model? Now, of course, all actuaries in the room, we all work with models quite frequently. So we have some sort of data. We process it in a way to have input for our model, which has some sort of quantitative formula and provides output, which is then used in reporting or decision making. Obvious, right? So the big question is really, where does your model begin and where does it end? Is it just the quantitative part of it, the methods and approaches that actually do the calculation? Does it include the processes which are in place to derive the input from the data? Does it include considerations of how the output is actually used? And what about the processes which transform the output into business decision making or reporting? So I'm not going to tell you what it is, but this is something which may seem trivial but is not so simple to define. All we do know is models include high level of expert judgment. We rely a lot on data and assumptions. There's some sort of quantitative mechanism in the background. And they have a high level of uncertainty because they are a simplified version of reality. So with that, I would say the first thing we, we, you need to do when you manage model risk is define what is a model. And from our, or our advice would be, when you do so, try to be more inclusive rather than exclusive simply because there are other ways to limit the scope to which your model governance applies. Um, for example, through model tiering or the models that you want to include. But if you do not define the model, what, where it starts and where it ends properly, you might really miss some of the key drivers that drive your model risk. So, now, what is model risk? So I'm, I wrote my own definition here. There's 
obviously many definitions, but I think important to say is it's um, basically adverse consequences might be financial, might be reputational, or any other kind of consequences which might not be measurable, based on inaccurate, so really wrong model output, or no, yeah, incorrect, wrong model output, inaccurate, basically not accurate enough or not correct enough, misused, basically when it's not understood when the model does not work anymore, or misunderstood, not understanding when the model is suitable. So there are many definitions, of course. Um, I think the most important thing is to define what is the objective of um, model risk management. And this kind of implies the scope of the kind of model that should be included in a model risk governance framework. So the first one is obvious, avoiding misstatements, to basically avoid um, financial or regulatory fines in your f because of financial reporting issues and also reputational damage. This would imply that all your regulatory evaluation and capital models should be included in the scope, right? Now, these models are obviously often already run by actuaries who have or are governed by certain standards who probably apply a certain level of governance as a rule. So not so difficult. Um, however, when one thinks a bit broader about model risk, and this is the next level we come to, what about avoiding wrong business decisions based on models? So now I'm thinking about strategic or tactical asset allocation, or what about M&A models? What about um, deciding which kind of distribution um, channels one wants to use and so on? So really like business decisions. What if one makes the wrong decisions there? And also the flip side, what if you do not make the right decisions. So also a good example I think here is, for example, M&A models. Now, um, I think Louis talked earlier about strategic risk. Strategic risk is a big, big issue in the world, right? And one might say, well, um, that has nothing to do with models, but think about how many times strategic decisions are based on model outputs and how often are those models actually governed and fully understood. I'm gonna take again the example of M&A. So these models are often built very fast um, to get some sort of assessment because of the time pressure. Very often not very well governed. Maybe the people who make the decisions don't really understand what is going in and coming out, what assumptions are being made. And decisions about M&As have significant long-term consequences. So isn't that as important as the first one? Just a question. And how often do we even know that these risks have materialized? Because like I say, if you have a strategic risk issue, you might not see that as a model risk um, event actually occurring, but I think often it is. And the last one is operating losses, so basically cash losses. And this means, or this would imply that you need to include pricing modules, hedging, hedging models, um, kind of anything which relates to fi financial and commercial operations. But it can go even wider. What about um, your uh, HR models, for example, remuneration models? When I was in Europe, I um, developed a stochastic share-based bonus valuation model for directors of a big insurance group. And um, I mean, I was quite junior. It was quite a big sum of money that was being paid out to them and the model was pretty ungoverned. So who knows what can go wrong? And I've actually heard from somebody in the industry who's told me that they've recently reviewed a HR model used for bonus payments, which they found mistakes. So imagine how much cash losses have come through there. So you can define the scope of your model risk governance framework depending on your risk appetite and depending on what kind of risks you actually want to mitigate. So back to Kavi. So I, I think given, given the, the time we have today, I'm going to talk through this slide quite quickly. Um, really what, 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 
what this also also speaks to is is um, around that 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 definition of of model risk. Um, I mean, just delving into the the issue of Knight's capital a little bit deeper. Um, one of the things, or, or, or the, the root cause of of the issue that the Knight's capital um, faced, I didn't actually mention, um, and that's really the fact that someone had deployed to the production environment um, the incorrect model, um, and and it it was uh, it, it was in fact a a piece of code that was a legacy piece of code on the system um, that had been on the system for more than 10 years. Um, so when everything went wrong, um, there were a number of errors that popped up uh, on, their, on, the, on their dashboards and systems um, referring to uh, this, this piece of code and, and, and a particular error code which no one knew how to decode and, and debug. There's obviously quite a lot you can go into and, and unpack that. Uh, over there, but one of the most interesting things for me, I think, is uh, where do you draw the line between the model risk and the software risk um, in a world where, which is becoming more and more automated? Um, and, and in fact, I would argue that, that um, perhaps that isn't a distinction worth making, um, and perhaps we should be looking at, at, at it all uh, altogether, um, because at the end of the day, it's the consequence and, and, the, and the materialization of risk that matters. So now to practicalities. How can we manage model risk? Now, as Kavi said, we are proposing a framework, which is a framework. There are obviously many ways to, to manage this. But um, this is something we've both seen in practice, and um, it's a way you can set it up. Very important is to note that there's not one one-size-fits-all model, and there are ways to basically apply this in a way that's practical and makes sense for, firstly, the kind of objectives we have, and secondly, the size and complexity of your actual um, organization. So on the right, left-hand side, the framework, just setting up the framework at first. So de defining actually a model risk policy seems quite trivial. We recently did a survey where we actually asked how many companies do have a model risk policy formally in place. And I think it was in the end less than half, so not so many, but many do manage it on an informal basis. Now, I think it again depends on the scope you want to cover. If you're covering only actuarial models, which are potentially already in the area of the chief actuary or the CRO, it might be quite easy to manage it without actually having something formal in place. Nevertheless, if you want to actually expand the scope to the ones that impact business decisions or operational losses, you might actually need a formal policy just to have the mandate to actually manage that. So in this model risk policy, you would obviously define what is a model and what scope, what kind of models are to be included within the framework. The next part is setting up a model inventory structure. Now this sounds quite boring, a little bit like a database of models, right? Um, however, we actually recently spoke to the independent validation unit, um, head of the independent validation unit of a big insurance group, and uh, had asked him if he could go back in time, what would he do differently? And the first thing he said is, I would pay more attention to my model inventory, because it's such a fundamental way to manage model risk and to just understand your exposure and track that, that it actually um, deserves quite a bit of attention. So when you define a model inventory, I think, like Kavi said, we're going to cut it a bit short. So I'm not going to go in too much detail. But basically, the idea is here to capture the attributes of all the models you have within your organization, which falls in the scope of the policy. So something like who owns it, what's the purpose, where does the output go, what kind of materiality it has. Um, that's just to get an idea of how important the models are. But you would also potentially want to understand how well controlled they are. So for example, 
What kind of data controls are there? Do the assumptions get reviewed? Do the output get reviewed? Is there a validation taking place? What kind of documentation exists? You can imagine the list is endless, but quite important to think about what to include in the model inventory. Then um, establishing model, um, model tiering criteria. So the idea of the tiering criteria is really to say tier one models are the most important ones and they will be um, subject to the most stringent requirements, whereas tier three or five, depending on how many tiers you would like, um, are the least important ones and therefore don't have so many requirements. And of course, there you can go from being very strict, independent, annual validation and all documentation and a lot of control requirements also in terms of sign-off and things like that to level five being no requirements or one model methodology description is sufficient, something like that. Depends, the model tiering criteria is really just there to make it practical and make it pragmatic so that you don't overkill on models which are not important but rather focus on those which are really important and specify the criteria and the requirements for that accordingly. Um, so specifying requirements, I've already touched on that, based on the criteria would be different for every model, model tier. And then of course get involved, get the people who actually use the models involved in order to make sure what you're proposing makes sense. Implementing the framework, so formalize it, get it approved by the board. Set up a coordination role. You cannot imagine, depending on how you set this up, how much work it can be to run this framework. So um, many of the um, insurance groups in Europe have full-time validation units. Some keep it quite slim, others have really massive um, resource allocation to that. But somebody needs to make sure that it's actually adhered to, that it's understood, that the model inventory is kept up to date, that the requirements are actually met and carried through. Um, yeah, the third point, take stock and assign tiering. So basically fill your inventory, see what models you have, tier them and make sure in the last part, close the gaps of those important models in terms of the control requirements, documentation, validation and so on, and then get into your normal mode of just running with the framework. So this is just an example again of how it can look. Um, when I talk about controls, just to give you an idea, um, I think one thing in, under controls which we found is quite important is distinguishing between model updates and model changes. Sounds very trivial, but um, it's something which is quite important because a model update is something which takes place quite regularly. You don't want too much requirements around that, but maybe some. But model changes, potentially more requirements around that. So it's very important to distinguish between the two so as to implement something pragmatic. And um, what else? Yes, model reviews, documentation. So there's also different types of validation. The initial one, I think a lot of models, at least the ones I've seen here, have gone through an initial validation, but since then never been re um, validated afterwards. It's quite important to have something like a regular or ad hoc validation as well to make sure the model is still fit for its purpose. And documentation, of course, you can go, um, go quite deep into that. Expert judgment, something which very often applied in our world and very often not appropriately documented. So something to think about. But um, to get into a bit more practicalities, Kavi and I will share with you some practical examples that we've seen. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to draw out um, just two things uh, from essentially uh, the, the IMAP process. Um, so IMAP, for, the, for those of you who don't know, internal model approval process, um, an enormously onerous um, and some would say over-engineered process for getting regulatory approval uh, for your capital model and essentially um, you know, winning some, ca some capital relief from the regulator by proving that your business risk profile is, is somewhat different. 
Um, I think given all the onerous um, requirements around IMAP, um, it's, useful, it's a useful case study to, 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 to look at and, and essentially extract uh, what you can that's, that's useful from it. Um, two things that, that, that really struck me um, as we worked uh, through several IMAP applications. Uh, the one was the focus on expert judgment. Um, so I think, especially in, in actuarial models, uh, there is a large amount of expert judgment um, exercised. Uh, you know, everything from the structure of the model to some of the, of the most sensitive and most important parameters uh, tend to have a degree of expert judgment and in a lot of cases a large degree of, of expert judgment applied. Um, and to date, uh, you know, in, in a lot of cases and for a lot of models, um, there's very little scrutiny on that, on that expert judgment. At most, there's maybe an, an actual versus expected or an analysis of surplus that's, that's, that's sort of done that, that, um, that perhaps holds the, holds the actuary or holds the person making that judgment to account. Um, but, but really what IMAP calls for is, is an independent review and an independent, equally qualified expert um, to, to, to challenge that judgment. And I think it's a, it's, it's a very useful um, uh, process to, to go through where the model risk is sufficiently high. Um, and the second element is, is, as Adelia mentioned, around the change. Um, typically what I've seen in, in, in less mature environments, uh, model change is not particularly well governed. Um, you, you know, once again, it's an analysis of surplus or an analysis of change, and you, you'll find one line item there which, which sort of highlights basis changes. Um, but, but, but really, you, you know, in, in IMAP, for example, model changes are categorized. Adelia mentioned, you know, updates versus changes. Um, you, you can add a few more tiers onto that. Uh, and the level of rigor and challenge that applies, you know, to those models, um, you know, given the, the significance and also the significance of the change um, can vary. Um, and, and I thought that was another very useful um, uh, element that we, we could borrow in, in, in everyday model management. Okay, so the example I have is from a, well, it's, it's Allianz, basically. <laughs> so model, model governance framework. They're obviously a huge, very complex organization with a full internal model, about 70 entities reporting into that. So it's, um, it's quite complex and probably not relevant. M many of the things will not be relevant, but I've, what I found was quite um, interesting or quite useful is the way um, it was set up is basically for each model, so risk model and, uh, and technical provision model, there was a model validation program which split, um, was split into two parts. Requirements like minimum check requirements for the person who's running the model and minimum checks for the person who's validating the model. And how it was set up is that um, the burden was really put on the person who's running the model to conduct a lot of testing and checks and validation, kind of validation-like activities and document those. They were also split between whether they should be done every time the model is run, so quarterly, for example, or every time the model is updated, so annually, for example. So they were a bit pragmatic also in that way. But the whole concept was to put a lot of the kind of validation work burden on the, on the person who's running the model, force them to document that, and then bring in the validators to review it independently. And it just meant that they could set up their validation unit very slim. So they had, I think, they have six full-time employees in their group validation unit and two or three um, consultants full-time. And the rest is really pushed down to the people who are actually running the models. So I thought that was quite an interesting way to set it up, which might be useful also. Okay. So, so, 
So to end off, um, what we put down here were some of the trends uh, that, we're, that we're seeing in the world and, and perhaps some of the implications uh, when it comes to, uh, to model risk management. And I'll talk through um, some of them. Um, I, I think so, some of them which are perhaps a little bit closer to home um, relates to the regulatory environment um, that we're, we're moving into. Um, I think Sam, now having gone live, uh, we, we, we find ourselves with a completely new regulator um, and one who is uh, you know, much more used to, I would say, uh, very rigorous model risk management in the banking sp space, um, whereas in the insurance space, um, perhaps less so. And, and essentially those two cultures coming together at the regulator, I think there is uh, definitely some movement that we'll see um, in terms of the attitude towards, uh, towards model risk management. Um, I've spoken around the proliferation of models and, and, and big data and, and, and those sorts of trends in the world. Um, I would say the, 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 the other ones are around the fact that apart from becoming more automated, uh, the, the organizations these days are changing a lot quicker. Um, decisions are being made a lot more quickly um, and also there's a lot more pressure to um, essentially evolve the organization, launch new products, um, change operating models, um, perhaps automate you know, additional processes. And the risk management that's required in order to keep up with that um, needs to take uh, an, a, a, an appropriate form. Um, I was involved uh, with some of the banks who were looking to launch algorithm or had launched algorithmic trading environments in South Africa just after uh, Knight's Capital um, event happened. Uh, and it did send shockwaves through the high frequency trading uh, world. Um, there were a number of audits conducted in, on all, on, in all of these environments. Um, but it was very interesting to see uh, what, the, what, what the end result or the outcome was uh, of, of all of this. And essentially, um, once again, I think a very interesting case study because we're talking about an automated process and, a risk, management, and risk management in a very risky live automated process. Um, essentially, what, what uh, some of the banks had to do was put in risk management coders, risk management quants, alongside the first line teams. Uh, and and what, what essentially ended up happening was they built second line risk management algorithms, completely independently of the first line algorithms, which would monitor the high frequency trading algorithms and, and, and effectively rein them in when they, when they malfunctioned. Obviously, in those environments, speed is very important and efficiency is very important. Milliseconds matter. Literally milliseconds are the difference between making millions and millions of dollars um, and not making any money at all. And so the risk management that needed to be put in there um, needed not only to be appropriate in terms of, in, in, in terms of reining those algorithms in when they, when, when they did go wrong, but also sufficiently agile and sufficiently quick and efficient um, to not hinder, uh, hinder the first-line algorithms um, that, that were being executed. So an, an, an altogether interesting case study in, in my view. I, I, think, I think we're a little bit out of time, um, so perhaps we should call it there. I would just say the interesting thing about Nice Capital is in the end, two things happened. Stock prices plummeted. They basically wiped out their equity value. And 
they were completely illiquid. They had to take on massive lines of credit to recover. So maybe something to think about. Questions? I don't know if we have time. Thank you. Thanks very much. If we can thank them on the conventional act.